this is really, really important, Heidi, that a lot of Australians are getting the wrong information about. It's very pertinent and very important to get the right message across on this one. It's a long one. I mean, if I come fresh from an update, having spoken at a panel with the National IRS office people. So, you know, confirming the status of the Australian superannuation as of last week and needing to really correct the misinformation that's going out there about whether or not these need to be reported still for U.S. tax purposes. It's a big disservice because there's a lot of penalties that are the IRS is taking out right now on Australians. And a lot of the CPA firms in the U.S. are giving the wrong advice. You are listening to U.S. Tax, a podcast for Australian accountants with U.S. clients. Welcome to update 13 of U.S. Tax. This is Heide Robson. In this update, Marsha Dangop of Withers Worldwide in San Francisco will discuss Australian SMSFs with you. How do you handle an Australian SMSF for US tax purposes? Well, let me tell you what I understand so far. An Australian super fund is either a corporation or a trust or a pass-through entity. A public company is a corporation for US tax by default, I think you call it a per se corporation. Yes. The problem I have is I'm not sure that the large, I mean, the small SMSFs, are, of course, are not public companies at all. But yeah, the not. thing is, I'm not even sure that the large Australian super funds are public companies because they would all be trusts. I'm not you sure. You hit the main problem right there and there. Because none of them are per se corporations, right? So they would be treated as arguably trusts. But if you look at the nature of the holdings of these trusts, they are not our usual capital preservation trusts. Some of these trusts are very actively, especially the SMSFs, they're very, they're involved in a lot of business operations, right? Some of them hold operating companies underneath them on whatever stuff they've got. And so from a, from a trust, it gets reclassified into the U.S. as either a partnership or corporation, it will not be treated as a usual trust unless it's one of those plain trusts that just hold securities, you know, the usual will invest it, will grow the principal. And then at the end of like, you know, when they're ready to retire at pension phase, we'll pay it out. Some of the SMSFs I've come across are actually more active, right, than that holding, and maybe they are in violation (laughs) of the superannuation law and what it should have, but some of the super funds I've looked at have actual operating companies underneath them, right, that are owned by the owner. And some of them are actually more of such a nature, like they're into real estate development, right, where the trust is acquiring the properties and doing the real estate development and, you know, putting skin in the game. And we've done some active classification of these trusts as not superannuation trusts in the sense of a regular trust, but more of a partnership flow through so that we could get the um, capital gain preferential tax rates in the in the US flow through to that trust in Australia. Because if we treat it as a corporation, and you sell the underlying property in the US, a corporation doesn't get a preferential capital gain rate in the US. So you won't have the flow through over in Australia. So it's a very complicated creature once it comes here to the US. It's not as simple as a trust. Right. Can we simplify it and exclude the big trusts and just look at SMSFs? I'm hoping that that will already 
simplify it. And yeah, I, I think if we can if we can take out the entity election from the beginning, and let's just say we're dealing with this SMSF. You know, it's been you know employer, maybe no employer fund, maybe all funded by the by the owners themselves. And uh, you have a corporate trustee entity. The directors and shareholders are the beneficiary members themselves, also. So very simple routine structure. Yes, and I understand that these SMSFs are basically always foreign guarantor trusts. Not always. I, I, There's three different ways of looking at this SMSF. You could see it as an, a foreign pension trust a 402B, which is what we call a section 402B trust, which would be generally seen as a non-grantor trust for U.S. perspective, unless there's a switch in the regulations that says if the employee portion of contributions is more, not incidental, but more than the employer contributions, it doesn't get treated as a foreign pension trust. It gets treated as a foreign grantor trust. Good. So it all depends on who makes the contributions. If well, you basically I'm just not done yet, Heidi. That's okay. one way of looking at it: is a foreign pension fund trust, and then there's the switch, and then the other way is as a foreign grantor trust under Section 679, and that's where you have a U.S. grantor and you have a U.S. beneficiary. And that's what triggers the foreign grantor trust rules under subchapter day. So these are two different subchapters of our code. Yes. So it all depends on who makes the contributions. If you basically just have employer contributions, so the trustee slash member slash beneficiary doesn't make any personal concessional contributions or non-concessional contributions. If you basically just have SG coming into the trust, then it is a foreign pension trust. Whereas if you have concessional, personal concessional contributions or non-concessional contributions coming in that are more than 50% of all contributions coming in, then you would have a foreign grantor trust. But then in this foreign grantor trust, you need to basically split the SMSF into two trusts and look at the portion that basically relates to SG, to employer contributions, and then look at the portion that relates to the concessional and non-concessional personal contributions, correct? Yes. And the the splitting is actually my position that I've advocated to the IRS. That is not the official IRS position. The official IRS position is no position. So I've been telling them that if you are going to go down the road of foreign grantor trust, because you say that the U.S. person, employee has contributed, you're taking into it, you have to take out all contributions by the Australian employer, because these are superannuation guarantees, they're not US. So it was my way of minimizing the extent of the US taxation of the Australian superannuation fund. Now I understand some accounting firms have taken my approach already, because the IRS is still in the middle of this tax court case of Dixon, that the Dixon case, which is, you know, where the IRS is contesting, whether the, the whole amount is super is social security. And I know that they're contesting that because the whole amount can't be social security from a US perspective, but the superannuation guarantee amount has, you know, a position to say that that at least is social security. But the IRS hasn't officially said anything about it. So if it was social security, what is the US taxation then? 
If it is your social security, then it's completely exempt, correct? No, you would you would also pay tax on the social security earnings depending on what the social security earnings are for any given year. But there's a portion that would be exempt. And I don't actually do the social security things because it's not it's not part of our practice, but I can just look it up quickly right now to let you know how much is taxable in any given year for social security. Okay, so you have a tax-free threshold, basically, and then any excess earnings are taxable. Yeah, because even our Social Security, the way we look at it, right, is you can only go, you know, if, it, okay, so for 2021, if you're the total income of the individual that receiving the Social Security is below 25000 then they don't, you know, the Social Security is not taxable, Okay, so for Social Security, you basically break it down to the individual. Or let me say differently, the portion that relates to the employer contribution, for that portion, the SMSF is basically a pass-through entity and it is passed through to the individual and then up to 25000 is not taxable and then anything in excess is taxable. That's under U.S. domestic law, Heidi, but under the U.S.-Australia tax treaty, if it's foreign social security, then none of it is taxable in the U.S. Okay, so that's good. So that means the entire portion of the SMSF that relates to the employer contributions would then be not taxable under the Australian-U.S. DTA. Yeah, and my position has always been that if the, you know, because it accumulates in value, right, the employer portion and the employee portion. So if the IRS agrees that the employer portion is foreign social security, then they also have to agree that the growth from that portion, right, from that initial contribution should also not be taxable because it is from exempt social security, foreign social security, and it shouldn't be taxed to the owner, the U.S. owner. Right. So you have a pro rata portion. That is the position that we've been taking for the last five years, actually six years now on our social security, on our superannuation filings. So this first case is basically very straightforward. If you have an SMSF that only has SG contributions and nothing else, then none of it is taxable in the US. Neither the contributions nor any pension payments are taxable because it all falls under foreign social security, which is exempt under the Australian USDTA. No, because this is why this first case takes the position that all of this SMSF is social security. This was written by, you know, there is a tax opinion going around that some Australians have purchased uh, that says, yeah, we will you know, defend with the IRS if you're ever audited that this is social security. All of it is social security. This, this, the Dixon case takes all of the SMSF as exempt as social security, not the, not just the superannuation guarantee portion. Okay, but at least the superannuation guarantee portion is clear. Everybody agrees that the SG contributions fall under foreign social security and hence are exempt under the DTA. So that is kind of the social on. They, they don't agree on that either. Oh, okay. There is no agreement, Heidi, on this issue, which is why it's very controversial right now, but it's very relevant to a lot of Australians here and there. And even the big Australian funds should be rallying on this because uh, the, the social security agency, when they negotiated a totalization agreement, agreed that it is equivalent to U.S. Social Security, but the IRS has not conformed or explicitly admitted that, that it is equivalent. So, so two different agencies of the government, two different interpretations. 
I see. So what is somebody who has an SMSF that only received SG and nothing else? What are they meant to do? Are they allowed to treat it as exempt or do they need I, to? They should file. They should still disclose it with the IRS and do a protective filing and claim the position that it is exempt as social security, but they should do the protective filing because if they don't file, they get penalties. But at least if they do a protective filing, they are alerting the IRS that they think it's exempt, but the IRS has not given any definitive guidance on this. So if the IRS ultimately comes back and says we're wrong, that they would be at least protected from penalties for okay. failure. So the portion of the SMSF that relates to SG contributions should be exempt based on our understanding of all the rulings around. But just to be sure, because the IAS hasn't taken a position on this yet, just to be sure, you should do a protective filing for this portion. Right, so instead of not filing at all, which is what a lot of Australians have done. And Good. so what's happening is they are receiving now assessment notices from the IRS. And the IRS is actually saying, hey, you owe us penalties because you did not disclose your social your SMSF, which is a foreign trust from a US perspective, regardless of whether it's a 402B trust or a foreign grantor trust, it's a trust. So you should have filed either a 3520A or a 3520, you know, pick your poison. And as a result, you will fall under the foreign trust reporting penalties. So if you have SG contributions, report these as a 402B trust, a foreign pension trust. But or a foreign grantor trust. You pick your pick whichever your accountant agrees to file for you on. Because and then there should be a filing. Yeah, you should never not file. That's the takeaway. Okay, good. So that was the SG contributions. And I was hoping that would have been easy, but even that wasn't easy. So now we come to the concessional personal contributions as well as the non-concessional contributions. And so is there some understanding that they are A, not foreign pensions, hence they're not exempt under the DTA, and they need to go into a foreign grant or trust? None of this is being, none of the, the superannuation concessional and non-concessional portions for the, for the employee do not fall under the current version of the double taxation agreement. It's not addressed under Section 18, uh, Article 18. So there is, from a U.S. perspective, it is not at all exempt. It is taxable income to a U.S. person who is based in Australia paying into this self-managed superannuation fund, or maybe even based in the U.S., right, and paying into a self-managed superannuation fund. Although, you know, I know there's ways around how someone who's Australian citizen here could still be paying into a superannuation fund in Australia, whereby they take the position they're still Australian resident. So there is, it will always be taxable in the US. It's always taxable in the US. But the question is how? Do we have a look-through approach or do we not have a look-through approach? And I understand for a foreign grant or trust, you have a look-through approach. So all income and all expenses are taxed in the US. That's the bad news. The good news is then that any pension payments after that are tax-free because you already paid tax on, on everything. Right, right. To From a big picture, yes, that is correct. Most of it should be tax-free. If you're, you've paid taxes in Australia, you, because you know there's limitations on how much foreign tax credits you can get on your U.S. tax returns on any given year. I mean, you're not allowed to take it so that you wipe out all of your U.S. tax liability unless you know there is 
if it's general limitation or passive limitation. So, so there's, but generally you should be able to take a foreign tax credit on the payments you've done uh, on the same income in Australia. Good. So you get a 15% FTC, foreign tax credit? Yes, and you that, do. And do you have any idea what the tax rate would be in the US on this income? It would be treated as ordinary income. So it's graduated rates depending on, you know, mm. the individual, but it would be treated as ordinary. It could go they, up to 37%. And then you have the capital gains. Once they are realized, Australia only taxes 50% of it. Correct. And then the US side, it can once go realized, up to 37%. We would, we would tax 100% of it. Australia gives you a 33% discount. So outside of an SMSF, it's a 50% CGT discount. And within the SMSF, it's a, a third, so 33%. But with the reduced tax rate of 15%, it kind of comes out the same way. But so you're right, it still creates a mismatch that while both only tax realized gains, Australia has a 33% CGT discount, which the US, of course, doesn't. The US might have a higher tax rate because it goes up to 37%, whereas we only tax it at 15%. Well, we haven't gone up to 37% yet. It hasn't been, you know, it's, it's it, right now we're still taxing long-term cap, capital gains at 20%. Oh, okay, actually, sorry. for foreign, 23.8%. 23.8% right now because of the net investment income tax, but that that higher capital gains tax rate hasn't kicked in for oh, this okay. year. So it's okay. just one of the proposed ones unless, you know, it, it, it finally gets in place, but. Yes. Okay. But I think that is, you know, that is manageable. You pay, you pay tax in Australia on the um, dividends And the uh, capital gain. But of course, in Australia, you get a franking credit on the dividends, which of course you wouldn't get in, get the, in US. the US. Yes, so you got it, Heidi. So in the US, you would only, let's say, let's keep it at, let's say the franking credit is a 30% because it's easier to calculate. Yep. Then you would have, in, in the US, you would only recognize $70, where in Australia, you would recognize the $100 and then get a franking credit for $30. Yeah, for us, we only see the $70. Exactly. And we don't give the credits, which is, you know, one of the another paper, Heidi, that I should be writing on yes. <laughs> if we had if we all had the time. But the franking dividend, the frank dividends issue is another you know main point of issue. Right. Because the the systems are just not compatible in that sense. But there seems should have been a workaround somehow in the tax treaty. Right. Because we know that our countries are not, you know, the re tax regimes are not aligned. Yes, but again, we we don't we don't, I've looked and I haven't seen any provision in the tax treaty that would allow for the franked dividend, you know, the credit to that to pass through to the the Australian who's in now in the U.S. who can't get the credit for the for the franking for the payments made by the Australian company on the dividend, basically. Yes. Yes. So it yes. is it is one of those things. So let's say that. That dividend, that franc dividend was issued to an SMSF, right? Because the SMSF invested in an Australian company. The company issued a franc dividend. SMSF filed a tax return, claimed the dividend, uh, the, the franking credit on it, and then called it a day. On the U.S. side of that filing, it would be the Australian U.S. citizen, U.S. Citizen, US person claiming all of the underlying assets as theirs, which means the dividends would have been 
deemed to have been paid directly to the individual, and then there would be no franking credit to be claimed on the U.S. tax return. Uh, let's say the U.S. citizen in Australia has a tax bracket of less than 20000 so it doesn't pay any tax. They would get the franking credit back. Or yeah, they, no, they get a refund. They get carryover. They get so, a refund, yeah, which so then would become, <laughs> again, ironically, income now on the U.S. person's tax returns. So in Australia, they declare income of $100. Mm-hmm. And then if their tax liability is, is zero, they would receive a refund of the $30 franking credit. If they only reported the $70 in their U.S. tax return, then it would actually be incorrect because they would be claiming a foreign tax credit for the $30. They would be underreporting the income, correct? If they only recognized the uh, $70 because they actually received Yeah, they actually got $100. So they would then file an amended return in the U.S. to report the additional income that was received. But then, you know, actually, they don't need to amend it if they receive the income in the next calendar year, because from our perspective, it's not fiscal year, it's calendar year. So let's say they reported the $70 for December 31, 2021. And then because the Australian tax year ends June 30, they'll say they get the refund. I don't know, Heidi, you'd say about six weeks after maybe? Yes. So they got it in 2020, let's say August 2022 they get a $30 refund because they, you know, because of the franking credit. So they would then include that $30 on their U.S. 2022 tax return. Yes. And not on the um, 2021. Yes. And of course, the franking credits go back to the SMSF. But because we have a pass-through approach, because it's a foreign grantor trust, and we treat it as a pass-through, that Although the franking credit goes to the SMSF, we report it as if it went to the individual for U.S. tax purposes. Yeah. And, you know, this applies to other assets as well, Heidi, and we're seeing a lot more of these coming across the desk in terms of actually using like pretty much like the Dixon case, right? You have real estate investments and, you know, some people want to acquire second homes and place the investment in the SMSF because the SMSF has the money, gets, you know, cap favorable capital gains rate, as you say, although it seems like 50% outside of the SMSF is better than 33%. But they will then use the SMSF to hold the property in the US. They will acquire real estate investments in the US using the foreign grantor trust. So in that sense, there is one advantage to that, Heidi. You're like, what is the advantage, Marcia? Well, the advantage is that if the owner of the SMSF is a U.S. person and the SMSF is disregarded, right? Basically, you know, everything is deemed owned by the U.S. person, then the sale of that U.S. real estate will not be subject to FERPTA the Foreign Investment and Real Property Tax Act, which applies when a foreign, when a non-U.S. person sells U.S. real property. So we've actually been able to take the position that even though this property in the U.S. is held by what looks like an Australian self-managed superannuation fund, because it is technically being reported for U.S. tax purposes as a foreign grantor trust to a U.S. person, then the sale of that property is not actually being sold by a non-U.S. person seller. It's being sold by a U.S. person seller. So FERPTA withholding would not apply. And the FERPTA withholding ranges between 10% to 
of the purchase of the sales price of that property that's being sold. And this is, you know, one of the few benefits I've seen uh, lately, Heidi, on a, a self-managed superannuation fund, because usually it's all bad news. But this but, is the one silver lining. But if a U.S. citizen owns U.S. property, they wouldn't be treated as a foreign resident anyway, because they're U.S. citizens. So they wouldn't have to be subject to third for, right, but for the seller, anyway. the escrow agents here, because it's the title is in a superannuation fund based in Australia, do not see it that way, right? They see an Australian superannuation fund as the registered owner of a U.S. property, and they will then be requiring a W-8BN from the superannuation fund to say, I am not subject to FERPTA withholding. And you will say, well, actually, yes, they are not subject to withholding because the owner of this superannuation fund is a U.S. citizen. But there have been a lot of erroneous FERPTA withholdings done on this aspect because the escrow agent saw a superannuation fund and the owners of the superannuation fund, who are U.S. persons who didn't know about, you know, who are also just new to the foreign grant trust treatment, didn't assert that. And so they got the purchase price was subject to a 10 to 15 percent withholding tax. OK, so a foreign grantor trust is actually not a foreign entity for tax purposes, but is a U.S. entity for tax purposes. Hence, you don't have the withholding. Yeah, it's a, the foreign grantor trust is a U.S. person, whoever is the grantor which Good. is a, an individual. Okay. And a U.S. citizen would put a U.S. property into an Australian SMSF. Why? Um, Why would they put of, it into an SMSF and not well, just hold it directly? They, well, some, well for, for one obvious reason is that they think that the SMSF will get better returns as opposed to them holding it. The money is probably coming from the SMSF, not from the U.S. citizen directly from their own pocket so they can invest the SMSF monies in real estate. Another thinking is that because they think it's a foreign grant or trust and it's an already a trust, then it's not subject to U.S. estate tax, which is also another wrong impression. But those are so many things, many reasons. What the primary reason really is the SMSF is the deep pockets of the U.S. person, right? They're like, oh, let's use my SMSF monies for it because the SMSF is taxed at a favorable rate, has all the monies that I've saved in it. Let's have it invest in this property. That's just basically the first go-to that they do. So one reason is that the SMSF has the cash. The second reason is that it looks favorable at first sight because in Australia you only pay 15%. But because it's treated as a pass-through entity for tax purposes, it doesn't really make any difference because in the end you just pay tax as you would if you had it in your individual name. And worse, it would be subject to you as a state tax when they die. Yeah, and it would be subject to U.S. estate tax, whether they hold it in individual names or whether they hold it in a foreign grantor trust. Right, exactly. It doesn't, so it doesn't make any difference either. It's not uh, subject to withholding, so there's no difference either. So the really only the only difference is really that the SMSF got the cash. Mm -hmm. So if the SMSF doesn't have the cash because you at the moment hold the cash in individual names, don't bother getting it into the SMSF through non-concessional contributions and carry forward and carry back and all this. Don't bother buying it through your SMSF because the end result is the same if you currently have the cash outside the SMSF. Yeah, and that's the, 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 the moral of the story is you make it more complicated 
than it needs to be. And yeah, you just pay higher accounting accountant fees without yeah, any tax saving. Yeah, and then usually they will hold it through a you know a US LLC for limited liability protection. <laughs> and then the SMSF will hold the LLC. Yes, this these structures are in place. Heidi, I know you're laughing, but it has, you know, it's just one structure on top of the other that really, if you collapse all of it, right, as an SMLLC is disregarded for US because it's owned by one entity, which will be the SMSF, which is also disregarded because it's a foreign grantor trust. So at the end of the day, you're paying fees and for structures that don't need to be. Yes, because it's all passed through. Yeah. Hmm. So this is like, you know, the rabbit hole goes really way down here, Heidi. This is like uh, how far, you know, it's like Alice in Wonderland when you deal about superannuation funds. And SMSF is at the frontier, at least here in the U.S., Heidi, of uh, the, you know, in terms of IRS review and, per and scrutiny because it is the most prevalent one. But there are also other ones, but the SMSF really, because of this case, the Dixon versus Commissioner, that is still pending, it brings, it's very relevant. There was a trial that was scheduled for November 1. There were two cases. This, the one I wrote about has been placed on hold because of the pending appeals situation with the IRS. There was another case, also Dixon, that was a smaller case that was supposed to have gone to trial November 1. It also got extended indefinitely. And I'm assuming that's because of the other bigger case. And uh, I'm trying to get the pleadings from that to kind of see what the reasoning was, but I can already predict it's probably the same. And so this issue of whether or not an SMSF is Social Security, all of it, or whether only the superannuation guarantee portion of it is exempt, is soon hopefully going to be clarified by the tax court. And then after the tax court issues a decision, the IRS, if it's favorable, right, the IRS will then go to town on that, which means if it's favorable, it's not Social Security, it's a bad news for everybody. But if it's not favorable to the IRS, which means, you know, portion is exempt or all of it is exempt, the IRS has, can either acquiesce, you know, or not contest it anymore, or they can file an appeal. You know, so it's just one of a long of a series. But this issue has been percolating for the last decade here in the U.S., and it has not gotten a lot of attraction, airtime air on it. This is the first case. I know that the um, Fix the Tax Treaty people over there with some U.S. expats have been actively lobbying there in Canberra, and I understand they've also gotten an audience here in the U.S. I know the U.S. government and the U.S., you know, different the IRS and the ATO are also aware of this issue. But, you know, it just seems that in the meantime, who is suffering? It's the ordinary person that has a self-managed superannuation funds that's suffering because if you want to protect yourself and want to say, you know what, I don't think I'm subject to tax on this, but just in case the IRS comes out in the future with a holding that's against what I think it is, I want to do a protective filing the cost of filing a foreign trust reporting with a CPA here can be very expensive, right? And we cannot deduct tax return preparation anymore on our income tax returns. So this is just a financial disaster for, you know, a plain Joe, plain Mary, just having, you know, devoted maybe 10 years to Australia, contributed diligently, then rolled it over to a self-managed superannuation fund you know, thinking now I've got enough investment monies going through. And 
Meanwhile, the IRS machinery, the enforcement, is becoming stricter and stricter, sending out these penalty notices to people in Australia who are U.S. citizens or U.S. green card holders or you know, have been identified as owning a self-managed superannuation fund and did not file a 3520 return either on time or not at all. And, and these the, notices are coming out. I mean, Australians are receiving them. And this 3520 report, that is the report or the form you file as a protective filing regarding the SG portion? Or is that the, uh, the foreign guarantor trust. trust? I see. Yeah. That's the foreign yeah. No, the 3520A... Dash A is the foreign grantor trust filing, and the 3520 is just a foreign trust filing. You know, just a foreign trust, not a grantor trust, and it's 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 filed to reserve your basis, as I say. You know, protect yourself. A lot of accountants are also, you know, over here are very hesitant to file this because you know it's an international tax form. There's a lot of information required that likely an Australian trustee will have, an Australian superannuation fund will have, but not the, the US person themselves. If it's a self-managed superannuation fund, it, it theoretically should be easier because then it's really just Australian accountants of the US person who's filing the tax returns and doing the reports for the superannuation fund so they can send it over. But there's a lot of work that a US CPA has to do to be able to file these correctly because of the discrepancy, not discrepancy, but just the, the different tax regimes between Australia and the US and the translations that need to go. It's a lot of work. Yes, you first kind of need to understand the issue before you can even prepare it. So to summarize, it's basically, if you have an SMSF that just has SG, do a protective filing just to make sure it's exempt. And then for any personal non-concessional contributions, it depends on the outcome of the Dixon case. If the Dixon case goes the IIS way and hence all of it is taxable, <laughs> the personal non-concessional is taxable, then basically don't bother with an SMSF because the, uh, the cost to file a foreign grant or trust will be substantial and you don't have any tax saving because the foreign grant or trust is just a look-through entity. So in the end, you will be taxed exactly the same way as if you held all the super assets in your own name. So then don't bother with an SMSF. But if the Dixon case goes against the IIS and it turns out that also personal and non-concessional contribution and the investment Our incomes are exempt, then yes, then go for it. Then have as much SMSF as you want and you just pay tax in Australia basically because the US received a slap on their hand and were told to back off. Yes, and if you if that goes under the ladder, don't forget to file your form 8833 to claim Article 18 of the US-Australia Tax Treaty claiming that that is foreign social security. So basically another protective filing. Yes, another treaty-based benefit that you're claiming as a, you know. Yeah, and that is 883A, correct? 8833. Uh, eight, eight, yeah, yeah, that's right. You already mentioned that before. So basically, whatever you think is exempt, Do an 8833 filing just as a protective filing to make sure you put all the facts on the table. Yeah, so you get your 3520A in there, you get your 3520, you get your 8833. You know, the 3520 gets filed ahead of the US income tax return as opposed to like a 3520 and an 8833. The 3520 is due on March 15. A form 3520 and a form 8833 gets filed along with a 1040. 
on June 15 for US for persons outside the US, right? April 15 for those within the US, you can get an extension, right? So if you get an extension on filing your income tax return uh, until October 15, then the form 3520 and form 8833 is not due until October 15. But the 3520A is due March 15, and it's usually the one that's missed because everybody assumes that everything gets filed with a US income tax return, not the 3520A. And that's a lot of the reasons why the IRS is sending out these penalty notices because they either filed late, they didn't get an extension, or they didn't file at all. And the, the penalties are quite stiff. So, you know, wanted to bring that to your attention, Heidi. I know this is not your cup of tea, so I really appreciate you giving me some airtime to do this and bring this to the attention of the Australian, you know, tax professional community, because there's a lot of confusion out there. And the last one, if a US CPA tells you that revenue procedure 2020-17 exempts a superannuation fund from filing a form 3520 or a form 3520A, I caution you, it does not. So that mistake has been made also in the last year since the 2020-17 procedure came out. I think everybody was hoping, including me, that it would cover an Australian superannuation fund, but the requirements to be exempt as a foreign, uh, as a tax favored foreign retirement plan or a tax favored foreign savings plan doesn't fit a superannuation fund. Hmm. So it's a, it's a caveat to, to look again and look closer before you, you know, you go have a vacation and think, oh, I'm done. And uh, I was just in a panel with the IRS last, last week in San Diego at the California Lawyers Association Conference, speaking about trips and traps, hot tips for international tax reporting. And, um, you know, this was brought up. Yes. Yes. And when you say it's not my cup of tea, it very much is. Basically, now it will who, be your cup of tea. <laughs> yes. Anybody who has a U.S. citizen as a client with an SMSF, must have this as a cup of, it has to be part of the toolkit. One yes. of the main things that are often missed. And of course, Heidi, you're right. This is, this is your cup of tea, maybe not your usual flavor, but it is part of the tea packet. Another thing, Heidi, and I know there's many people that listen to your podcast is, you know, there was this Australian news, one of the Australian periodicals came out and said, the Dixon case proves that Australian superannuation is social security. And I'm like, that is not what the case is about at all. In fact, the case hasn't even been established yet. It hasn't been had to trial yet. And I, you know, I, that was very troublesome on my part to see that written because that's not at all what the case was about. It is what the case is about. It's just that the case hasn't been decided yet. Once the case has been decided, then we will know whether personal and non-concessional contributions will lead to exempt Social Security or not. It is part of what the case is all about, but the main reason for the case was entity classification. And yes. then which we didn't added, discuss. Which we didn't discuss because it's too confusing for the regular, you know, that, that would be Jedi 101, Heidi. Yes. <laughs> that would be Jedi 501. Yes. Uh, that would be another conversation to have. But this is a very exciting area. There's a lot of movement going on to it because of this. Iris came out with a rev proc in 2020, then came up with a Dixon case, right, in 2021. All, all the, these two cases. So there is, I'm sensing a crescendo 
in in the the interests uh, to to finally lay this to rest. And then you've got the thirty five twenty penalties campaigns coming out, you know, like crazy in in this year, the pandemic year, and next year, and more IRS enforcement on the road. It is just a party waiting to happen. So, you know, either it's a, what did they, what did they say, Heidi? Usually you see the lights, the light at the end of the tunnel or the light of a, the headlight of an oncoming train. We still don't know what the headline's going to be, but you and I will be there definitely. Welcome back. In the next update, US 15, let's jump to February 2022. So we are almost up to date. Next time, Ross Treby in Davis, California, will discuss single-member LLCs with you. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next update. <laughs>